First Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 4, it's a vision. Something is being put before us. Uh, the vision of the church, the identity and the purpose of the church. The church, those people who make up the church are those who have come to Christ. Who are we? What are we? What do we do? Where do we do this? How do we do what God's called us to do? Why do we do what God has called us to do? It's a vision of the church today that we're going to read. That gets lost often in these words that we read. Many times people read these words and they think only of themselves or they think of some kind of spiritual experience out there. And we fail to remember this is the definition, the identity, the purpose of the church As I'm reading, we're reading together, I want you to imagine yourself, I want you to locate yourself in this passage. Because if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you belong here in this. You can become a follower of Jesus Christ and you will then belong in this passage. Locate yourself. I want you to imagine our congregation as we're reading. What what is it like as more and more we take on this and become this and live like this and believe this? What kind of congregation would this be as we read this? Imagine that. But then I want you to go even further out, a, a, a grander view. As we're reading, I want you to think of God's people all over the world, in every place on earth where the name of Christ is named. This is a beautiful and powerful vision of the church by God's grace. So stand with me in honor of God's word. I'll start in verse four of 1 Peter 2. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had, received, you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is God's word. You may be seated. Most often, becoming a Christian remains mostly an individual experience. Not just personal, but private. Becoming a Christian is often presented from beginning to end as personal only. 
which makes it private. We say things like this. You can personally be saved. Your sins are forgiven. You're given life. You're called to personal discipleship. You find your own individual purpose, your fulfillment, your giftedness for influence. Almost all of our faithfulness and fruitfulness to Christ is measured in an individual sense. The language of becoming something is almost always about you and I as individuals becoming something. Now we know that in many errors, most errors of incompleteness, which means we either overemphasize something or we underemphasize something, there's still some level of truth there. Most errors have some truth in them. So Christ does call for the individual to repent and believe and follow and be faithful and fruitful. And the individual person will be accountable to Christ. That's true. We really do, by faith in Jesus Christ, have a personal relationship with him. Jesus himself made that clear when he said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. So the point is not to overcorrect people by telling them to stop using the language of a personal relationship with Christ. In fact, we hope you have one. The point is this. When you and I or any other individual come to Christ and become a Christian, we also become a part of something so much bigger than ourselves. We become God's people. We hope you are God's person, but we become God's people, corporate, collective, together, serving God's purpose. So we're praying and hoping today that the Lord will expand our vision of God's calling to us in Christ to be His people for His purposes. This passage that I just read is what I would call visionary. Now, Peter is not giving us his vision for the church. Peter is not telling the elders of, this, of these congregations to come up with a vision for these congregations. Their job description is coming up in chapter 5. Peter is not leaving the vision of the church up to a congregational vote. Peter is not encouraging individuals to enter the church and press their own vision upon it. Peter is writing about what is. He's putting the vision, the reality of who God's people are before them so that they will see it and embrace it. You see, our joy, our hope, our energy, our energy for the church will come as we see it from God's perspective. As we see what God has done and is doing and will continue to do. Our joy and our hope and our energy for the church come when we receive from God what is set and fixed for us 
and then we submit to it, we enter into it, and we pursue that vision. So Peter is not giving us permission to come up with our own visions today for the church and press it upon. He's saying, this is what God has done. And by the way, it's, so, it's infinitely beyond anything we could ever come up with for the church. And he's saying, hear this, be encouraged by it, receive it. And here it is. As you come to Christ, come to Christ. Next, become God's people. And then, serve God's purposes. That is the vision of the church. So first, verse four, come to Christ. Actually, what does the phrase say? It says, as you come to him. And then it goes on to describe Christ and what happens when we come to Christ. But certainly, we can hear here in, in this passage words of invitation. As you come to him. It's a calling to come to Christ. What's interesting is this passage, this letter of 1 Peter was written only about 30 years after Jesus Christ died and rose again. Now, 30 years is not a long time. I just told you a moment ago that our church is, about, is, is 30 years old. That seems like yesterday to me. I remember the first Sunday. I, I can't believe that 30 years has passed so quickly. And I'm reading this letter and thinking this letter is written to the churches only 30 years after Jesus rose from the dead. That means that the news, at the time of Peter writing this, the news is still spreading. People are still trying to figure out what this whole thing is about, Christianity, Christ, following Christ, the church, this new group of people. Who are they? What are they about? It's spreading. And so you can imagine, I can imagine at least this, the congregation still learning the basics still telling their friends and their family members about these new things. It's not hard for us to imagine that a Christian would be listening to this letter read in their congregation that the great apostle Peter wrote, and then immediately they were in their, in their assembly, they called it, they were in their assembly on the Lord's Day, and then immediately after hearing these words, they went right out to tell somebody the next day about what it means to become a Christian. Why wouldn't this passage be used as a part of telling someone what it means to be a Christian? 2,000 years has passed since then, and we've, we've changed the message a bit. We say, well, you don't, you don't use words like this to tell somebody about what it means to be a Christian. You, you tell them, here's some steps, and here's some things they need to do. But why is that? These people, hearing this, only 30 years after Jesus Christ rose from the dead, the church is new. Most of the people in the area had never heard of Christ. They went right out and they told him these things. These are true. Why, why wouldn't this be basic to discipleship? When I read the passage just a, a moment ago, and I went through that big long list of things that, that the Lord says we are, and where was your mind? Were you thinking, this sounds like advanced seminary class to me? It sounds like for the real spiritually minded people. I, I want to remind you, brothers and sisters, we're reading, we're reading the New Testament. We're reading the, the first, one of the first letters ever written to the church. This is basic discipleship. This is like, this, this is telling someone what it means to be a Christian, telling them how it is to be a Christian. And this is for the 30-year Christian. Some of these people may have been Christians since the time that Jesus rose from the dead. It's possible that some of the people that are re reading this letter here were in Jerusalem 
at Pentecost. It's possible they were at least close by afterwards and that they became, became Christians early and they've been a Christian now for 30 years and they're reading the same thing. As you come to him, there's the point. Come to him, keep coming to him. That is the point. Come to Christ initially for salvation. Just go to him. Give your life to him. Trust him, be forgiven by him. Then follow him, keep coming to him. Come to Christ, that's the point. And come to Christ, to Christ. It doesn't say as you come to church. It's about the church, but it doesn't say as you come to church. It says as you come to him. Verse four, as you come to him, a living stone. Verse six, that living stone is called a cornerstone. Now I want you, you gotta get into some image, imagery today, okay? Uh, you gotta go in physically and understand the idea of a cornerstone, a foundation stone, and then you gotta pull back out to get some of the spiritual reality of it and understand how this is Jesus Christ. So think of a building. We're in one right now. Particularly, as Peter's writing, he's thinking about the temple. He's thinking about the great temple of the Old Testament and even of Jesus' day in Jerusalem. And it was built upon and it was organized around a stone. You could call it, it's called the cornerstone. You could say it was the beginning stone. It's like the first stone laid. It's the foundation stone. Everything is on it. It's the organizing stone. All the other stones fit around it. But there's this stone. Now that's the physical imagery. Now back out of that and think of Jesus Christ. That's what Peter wants you to do. He wants you to think of Jesus. Not just a temple. He wants you to think of Jesus. When we come to Christ, we come to the beginning of our faith, the originator of our faith, the foundation of our faith, the organizer of our faith. When we come to Jesus, we're coming to the one who started this all. We're coming to the one who was God incarnate, came, took on flesh, lived among us, a sinless life, went to the cross, died for our sins, was raised from the dead. These people actually believe that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. Peter saw it. And so they say, when you come to him, you're coming to the one who begins this whole work of God. The whole will of God starts with Jesus Christ, that central point of the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. He's the cornerstone, the first one put down, the beginning stone. And when you come to Christ, you're coming to the foundation. You're resting all of your weight upon Christ, all of your hope upon Christ. Truth, reality, the past, the present, the future, all of eternity rests on the foundation stone, the person of Jesus Christ. And all who build their life on him will not be disappointed. They won't, we won't fall. We'll be held up. Why? Because we're on the foundation. And when we come to him, we're coming to the organizing stone. In other words, that foundation stone, that cornerstone is laid. It's the first one. The weight rests on it. And then all the other stones in the building are built around it. They find their shape and their structure by that one. And so in that sense, it's the organizing stone. And Jesus Christ is the one around which we all gather. He's our organizer. We fit together in him. Look up, physically, look up, right there. You see those beams? 
This building, this, this roof, these walls were organized around the joint, the connection point of those beams. Right there. I watched them go up. And then I watched everything around it start to fit. It's a different imagery. It's not a stone. But the idea is there. This fits us. This fits these walls and beams. Or if you want, just think about the slab that you're sitting on right now. This is on, it's on cement, concrete. I watched him pour it. And no, I did not put my handprint in it anywhere. I should have. But I watched him pour it. This is the idea, you see. Christ is the cornerstone. He's the living one. He began this whole thing. He supports his church. We organize around him, not as an organization, but as an organism, a family, a group, a people, united around Christ, called the church of the living God. Come to Christ. Verse 4, but he was rejected by men. The Old Testament leaders and the people following after them rejected God's word in favor of becoming like the nations. If you read what happened to Israel in the Old Testament is they so longed to be like all the other nations instead of being the nation that God wanted them to be. That they gave up their unique place. They gave up their calling to be God's witnesses in the world and they gave themselves to the nations. Now this is the context. What's so interesting is this is the context of the quotes that start in verse 6. About the cornerstone being laid in, laid in Zion. About believing and not being disappointed. About stumbling over the cornerstone. All of these, these fit together uh, Old Testament quotes that Peter gives here are from this context of the nation of Israel rebelling against God. So in Isaiah, one of these is from Isaiah 28. One is from Psalm 118. Another one's from Isaiah 8. And so... They're all there, and what's happening is in the Old Testament, the people are being rebuked for rejecting God. And out of that rebuke came the prophecy that God would bring, would bring about, would send a cornerstone upon which a whole new people of God would be built. It's a prophecy in the Old Testament, kind of shadowy. Might not have understood what was going on, but God's given the prophecy. And then Jesus came on the scene. And in the book of Matthew, once again, Jesus' own people are rejecting him. You see that word? Rejected. Verse 4, rejected by men. Once again, when Jesus is here in person, in the flesh, his own people are rejecting him. And what does Jesus do? He looks straight at them and he quotes from Isaiah. This very passage about the cornerstone. And he applies it to himself. He said, he, standing before you, I am the cornerstone that is being rejected by men, but chosen and precious by God and will be believed on. Verses 7 and 8, those who rejected, it's a, it's a, here is a word of warning, starting in verse 7. He said that Jesus is the cornerstone, and then he said, those who rejected are those who did not believe. Verse 8, they stumbled over him because they were disobedient to his word. And in 
unbelief and in disobedience and in stumbling. Verse 8, they fulfill their destiny. The destiny of unbelief and disobedience and stumbling and rejecting. This is, this is the destiny of sinful, unbelieving humanity apart from the saving grace of God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So right in the middle of, of this beautiful vision of the church, there, there comes to us a word of warning to say to people, the way you're, you enter this church, the way you come into this people of God, the way you are saved by God's grace is through repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a word of warning. He's rejected. And the word goes out today, don't reject him. But verse four continues. But in the sight of God, this cornerstone, Jesus, is chosen and he is precious. God's plan from the very beginning was a chosen one, a redeemer, a savior, a son, one who would save and unify and lead and rule over his people in peace and righteousness and justice. This is Jesus Christ. And because Jesus Christ did all this, Jesus is precious to the Father. Jesus Christ is precious to the Father. Jesus is honored by God. God raised Jesus from the dead to reign and to rule. This is the stone that we come to. And when we come to him, he's a, look what it says in verse 3. He's a living stone. As you, or verse 4, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, precious and chosen. You yourselves like living stones. And here's, here's what we're saying. When we come to Christ, living stone, we come alive. We become living stones as well. We come into something that is bigger than us. We as living stones are being built together, which is the second part of this. The first part, come to Christ. The second part is this. When you come to Christ, you become God's people. Verse four again, verse five, and then I'm gonna skip to verse nine. He says, now with all this background, you've got this understanding. He says, as you come to him, Christ, the living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like <clears throat> living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. Skip to verse nine. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. This is who we are, brothers and sisters. This is who we are, Grace Community Church. This is who we are, Church of Jesus Christ in every part of the world. We are, first, verse five, a spiritual house. A spiritual house. Church buildings are important. You know, part of our 30-year history at Grace is that we spent the first 12 years without a building. Man, did I come to see that church buildings were important. You gotta get together somewhere. And so church buildings are important. Some form of physical structure is good because you know, God made us physical. God made us in time. God put us in space. God made us as matter. We are body and soul. 
Buildings and structures and places and spaces are the gatherings for God's people. We need physical places to be, bodily places to be. One of the things you can't do as a church is you can't think yourself there. You can't think yourself in connection with another person. It doesn't work that way. God didn't wire us up to have thought-to-thought connection. You say, what's the internet? I don't know, but it's not thought-to-thought. We got to get together physically. So the church buildings are great. God, who cannot be contained in a physical space, does, however, dwell with his people because his people become, by coming to Christ, a spiritual house. And we know that this passage is not talking about the individual Christian. It's talking about the church. Now, there is a time in 1 Corinthians 6 where the Bible talks about how each person is a temple of the Holy Spirit as an individual Christian. But we know that's not what he's talking about here because he's saying the individuals come together to make up something bigger than themselves, to make up a spiritual house. This is the church. When we gather together, this is important. When we gather together, when we come to Christ and to Christ's people, God is with us. God is among us. God dwells in us. And that's an amazing thought. Only the Holy Spirit in this very moment can cause you to have a deep appreciation for the fact that right now, this very second, God has chosen to dwell with us. The reality of that really does have an impact on the way we gather. And as we come, the more we gather, the more we're being built together into his house. This is happening now. This is ongoing. That we are built up. This is the expansive growth of the church because as more and more people come to Christ and become a part of Christ's people, then the spiritual house grows. It's like he's adding on. All the time. We are a spiritual house. We are, verse 5, a holy priesthood. He said, but I didn't go to seminary. How can I be a priest? Well, God made you one. Going to seminary won't make you a priest. I've been there. We're a holy priesthood. Holy means we're dedicated. Do you know that we are dedicated to God? We're holy. So I thought holy meant morally perfect. No, that's coming. But for now, we are dedicated. That's holy, set apart for God. We are a priesthood, which means we have a function. We're going to come to that in a moment. We'll get to the functions. We have a function to offer sacrifices to God. Verse 9, another thing we are is a chosen race. There's a human race. The human race is of the physical descent of Adam. God, in his grace, through Jesus Christ, has created a new race, a spiritual race. We have our descent in, from Christ. This is a chosen race made up of people, of all ethnic groups, who come to Christ as, a, as the living stone and themselves as living stones. 
And this spiritual race of people is ransomed by the blood of Christ. In other words, God in Christ has created a whole new bloodline. The blood that ransomed us from darkness and sin into light. The ransomed by Christ are the chosen race of God. And we are a royal priesthood. Verse 5 called us a holy priesthood, meaning we offer sacrifices to God. Verse 9 calls us a royal priesthood. In the context here, probably meaning that as this priesthood, nature of this priesthood is to proclaim God to people. And, verse 9, we are a holy nation. We are a people spiritually bound together under the rule of King Jesus and our allegiance is finally, ultimately, to Him. God has a nation. I was unsure as to how many nations there were. Sorry, I know if you kids are in civics class, you've got that figured out, but I was a bit unsure, and I looked it up, and guess what? Everybody's unsure. <laughs> so it's somewhere between 193 or 195, depending on how you count, nations in the world. God has a nation, and it's not listed in there. It's a kingdom under a king whose name is Jesus Christ who's ruling and who will rule forever after all the nations of this earth cease, and of course they will. But God has a nation, a holy nation of people. And the point and the purpose is that this holy nation is to represent Christ among the nations. That was what the nation of Israel was supposed to do in the Old Testament. They were supposed to be a holy people set apart for God, representing God's ways among all the nations in the world. They didn't. And in Christ, God is raising up and has raised up a whole other nation, a holy nation of people spiritually bound together to represent Christ among the nations. And we are a people chosen for God's possession, a people for His own possession. Having been ransomed by Christ's blood, we are now delivered to belong to him. Where did Peter get that vision? We've already seen him in Isaiah. Where, where did people, Peter get this vision of a people who are the possession of God, belonging to God? He got it from Hosea. In verse 10 of our text, he got it from the book of Hosea. This is a quote, a couple of quotes from Hosea 1 and 2. And in that book of the Bible, that Old Testament book, the Old Testament prophet Hosea is, is rebuking and calling and, and trying to woo back a people of God who have committed spiritual adultery on him. They have been unfaithful to their God, like an unfaithful wife, he calls them. And God is calling them back and saying, I will forgive your sins and I will show mercy to you. And Peter saw by the Holy Spirit, by the power of the Holy Spirit, Peter saw in this prophecy of Old Testament Israel, he saw this applying to a new people of God, consisting of all people from all nations who come to Christ as the living stone, who once were not his people, separated from God, 
but now are his people by his grace. Ones who did not have mercy from God, now being shown mercy from God. And he's pulling them all together and saying, these are the people, Jew and Gentile alike, who have come to the living stone as living stones. These are the people who now are God's very own possession. So before we go any further, I'll just ask you, is this your vision of God's people? Is this how you see yourself? Is this how we see ourselves? Do we see this is how God made us to be? His church, a house, priests, a race, a nation, a possession. Or are we corrected today because we want something else? We want a more privatized Christianity. We want to press our personal vision of God's people onto God's people to make them into our image. Is that what we want? If so, we're corrected. And we're also reminded that there cannot be a better vision for the church than the one that God has laid out, achieved, fixed, and given to us. We're God's people. And then finally, we're to serve God's purposes. So we're the people, by God's grace, who coming to Christ, becoming God's people, have become God's people, now we serve God's purposes. Tucked away in these passages are two purposes that God has given for his people. And the first one is this, it's in verse five. He made us a spiritual house to be a, royal, a holy priesthood, here's the purpose, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. God's people have a ministry. Years ago, I heard that phrase and I, and I didn't understand it, that the church has a ministry to God. I always thought that ministry is something you did just to people. But the more we read the Bible and the more we read things like 1 Peter, this very passage, the more we understand that God actually wants his people to minister to him. Again, in the Old Testament, if you understood the, the temple sacrifices and the priesthood, you understood that people were actually doing things and they were doing them only for God. If I said to you today, you're going to have a ministry and it's only to God, you would say, I don't understand that. It's, it's incomprehensible. What does God need me for? Don't other people need me? What, what is it only to God? What do you mean? But it's true. God has raised up a people to prioritize a ministry that is for Him. For instance, the book of Hebrews 13 says that we give a sacrifice of God which is praise and that praise is the fruit of lips that acknowledge His name. So what we did this morning, I was so spiritually um, encouraged by the singing that went on this morning. Uh, it was just absolutely wonderful. Do you know who that ministry was to even before it was to me and you? It was to God. Were you even aware that God was listening? Not in the, oh, he's listening to me and I can't sing very well. Not that kind of way. Or I didn't sing enough. Or he's going to get me. Not, not that kind of way. No, no. He, he's taking pleasure in the joyous, grateful praise of his people. So first and foremost, it was, it was for God. And you and I benefited from it. How about prayer? The fifth psalm is one of my favorites. It says, I offer up a sacrifice to you which is my prayer. 
And then I eagerly watch for you to respond. Did you know prayer is a ministry to God? He, in other words, God loves to hear His people pray. But here's one that really will ring true to most of us who are familiar with this language of offering up a spiritual sacrifice. We offer up ourselves. It's called, the, the, the church word, the theology word is called consecration. We consecrate ourselves. We give ourselves over to God. And Romans chapter 12 says that when we present our bodies, all of us, we present our bodies as a living sacrifice to God. It is holy, it is acceptable, it is pleasing unto God. So we should have this attitude among us, congregation, that as the gathered people of God, we are ministering to God through praise and through prayers and through offering up our actual physical bodies. And let's go ahead and expand it, okay? The physical building and everything about us, we're offering it up to God and we're saying, this is yours. This is a living sacrifice. Father, take it, enjoy it, do with it as you will. We give it to you. It belongs to you. That makes God happy. Can you imagine with me for a moment? Let's get visionary. Can you imagine with me for a moment what it would be like to live in a congregation, to live with God's people with that kind of attitude? And the second function, and we'll wrap up here, is to proclaim His excellencies. Verse 9. We are a people for God's own possession that we may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called us out of darkness and into light. We have an opportunity. We have an opportunity. We live in a dark land. We live in a dark city. We live in a dark world. Let's don't pretend. We're not trying to encourage ourselves with some false hope. Let's just put it right there. But God has called us out of darkness and into light. And we exist to proclaim His excellencies. Brothers and sisters, how did we drift so far from the original vision that Christ has for His church? That coming to Him, we become His people to serve His purposes. Time doesn't allow me this morning to list all the ways that we have either institutionalized or individualized the church, made it into our own image. So what do we do? You can do something personally. You can join me as we return to the vision that God has for His people. We can receive it as ours. We can pray it through. We can renew our love and our commitment to God's people. We can keep on coming to Christ. We can enter the church with this vision. We can protect the church to belong to God. We can join in the church's gathering to offer up the sacrifice of praise and prayer in our physical selves to proclaim His excellencies. We can each do that as part of what God has called us to be as His people. Father in heaven, thank You for Your Word. Thank You, Father. We'll only know in eternity how You will bear fruit from the reading of the word this morning, but we believe you will. 